Hey, everybody. This is Emmett, your co-host to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. And here I am joined by... Hey, guys. John here. Uh, and it's just the two of us today. Uh, today's a little bit of a rambler, but um, we're trying to tease out some ideas that we want to explore a little bit later in some episodes with specific deep dives. So we thought we'd give you a little bit of an intro app. And in this episode, we are going to be taking a look at the animalization of man, uh, Anglo-Saxon masochism, and last and not least, uh, the hegemony of entrepreneur brain. So welcome, and let's get to it. Tell me about, John, tell me about animalization. Tell me about Kojev and Japan. Okay. Well, maybe we'll take a long circuitous route there. Um, yeah. In the middle of our lives, we came to a wood and we do not know how we got there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, and the wood for me was Reddit. <laughs> I think I was... I don't know. Like one of the reasons I use Reddit honestly is because I'm sort of fascinated by like the kind of people on it. Mm -hmm. It's almost like they're, it's like a lot of kind of normies or something. I don't know how to put it exactly, but it's sort of like, what are a lot of people up to? How do they think and interact on the internet? Like this is one place where I can kind of find that out along with other things. So, well, yeah, Reddit doesn't have like the artisanal, totally extremely platform poisoning that like Twitter has or Tumblr had now that they got rid of porn, like the whole attention economy of Tumblr like fell apart. Um, oh, totally. Or like Facebook, right? It's not like algorithmized in the same way. No. And in some ways that makes it way more readable, mm -hmm. but also just as an interesting aside, I feel like there is a lot of like constantly just truly niche content on Twitter and mm -hmm. it's not as easy to find that on Reddit but on the other hand, it's sort of like there is more of a preservation of just like people's posts as they come. Yeah. Like the algorithmization isn't, like you said, quite there. But suffice it to say, so I was looking into um, some second language acquisition stuff because I recently got into like binge reading this blog, All Japanese All the Time, which we'll come back to later. Mm. And he basically builds on um, the theory of language acquisition, which was pioneered by a guy named Dr. Stephen Krashen in, I think, the 80s. He still mm. writes and publishes to this day. And he basically found out, to like really simplify it, the only thing that matters for getting a new language is like getting input. And we used mm. to think that like repeating stuff out loud all the time would help or doing like worksheets or whatever. But they found out like none of that really mattered. The only thing that mattered just getting enough input for a long enough time that your brain figured out the language and then you could just slowly start to speak it because right. some internal mechanism was slowly understanding the workings and putting them at your disposal. 
So it's like when he, um, Bart in The Simpsons is like kidnapped by those winemakers in France. <laughs> and like because he doesn't know the language they just like really exploit the shit out of him and then at some point he comes across a policeman and like starts speaking f- uh, fluent french because he's been there long enough he's like sacre bleu you know <laughs> yeah or like uh the 13th warrior when antonio banderas is just like traveling with the vikings for oh yeah however long the montage lasts and then suddenly they're like making fun of him and he's like your mother is a whatever and they're yeah, like yeah. how do you speak our language arab and he's like i listened yeah that's awesome um, and it's classic. same basic idea yeah but so anyways his blog was sort of him getting tired of people asking him how he got really fluent in japanese in two years while living in america so he just wrote a blog kind of going into what he did how that was just the application of those principles in those academic publications and you know, inviting you to kind of figure it out on your own. But so that, you know, he has preserved like the whole old blog, which is free and just like full of these things where you can go read and learn about it. And there is a certain like you're charting your own course thing to it. Like these are things that work, but like you're going to have to like apply stuff in your own life and just figure it out basically. Like, because one of the ways that it functions is, you're supposed to be doing stuff that you enjoy to get input. Hmm. So you're going to have to figure out like things that you enjoy and ways of like making the input more constant, uh, more frequent throughout the day. And that's not really something that can be easily systematized like for everybody. It just won't work. And so I was like, this is pretty interesting. Like uh, I'm into this idea. I enjoy reading about it. And I went on Reddit and looked at the Ajax for Reddit and Primarily what they're about in there is something that spawned out of AJAT called MIA or the mass immersion approach, which I think was, I could be wrong. I didn't look that deep into this guy, but I think there's a guy named Matt versus Japan who got into AJAT and was like an AJATter or whatever. Mm -hmm. And he kind of made his own spinoff version of it where it was a lot more about like, we're going for mastery and efficiency. Whereas Mm -hmm. Ajat was like, do something you enjoy and you'll keep doing it versus impose something upon yourself and you'll be miserable and not able to complete it. And I think for the most part, like the MIA stuff is also like, you should do things you enjoy so you can keep it up. But I won't even really say that I know anything about his system or method or whatever. I'll just be able to comment on how the people on the Reddit were. Right really my point is so they had this thing that's supposed to be pretty like self-directed and kind of about you know it's about like being fluent very quickly but it's also about doing something that you can sustain without having to like brutalize yourself by imposing something that's just miserable on yourself every single day and they kind of turned it into this thing where all the posts you're looking through and you're like okay like one guy is like i know listening to music isn't like the most efficient form of input so like should i only be listening to colloquial conversation like 24 7 and you start to see like oh like everyone here kind of didn't really get that point of this method and they just want to like hyper maximize Mm -hmm. efficiency and utils for like this process um and it seems to like generate an extreme amount of anxiety if they don't feel like they're doing that yeah so you know, and I read through some more stuff and there are things about like, if you're a Korean, 
Will you be able to learn Japanese to a level of proficiency much higher than any English speaker ever could? And most of the replies were like, oh yeah, totally. Their grammar is similar. So like, you know, it's just not fair. We'll never be able to catch up. Like, but that's just the way that life is. And it was just funny because the exact, like that exact idea was addressed on the AJAP blog where he says like people are often really obsessed with stuff they can't control that provides, Mm. can't control, which provides them excuses for like lifelong mediocrity essentially. Mm. And there's usually a huge draw to this, like, you know, we know about it from weightlifting, like, oh man, it's my genes, man. Like, oh yeah. I'll just never be able to get big. Dude. I, yeah. Or just like, I don't know, man, like, you know, I'm like, I'm isomorphic, like body type. But I'm not trying to get too big anyway. I'm like, how are you going to get too big? Where are you going to like accidentally pick up a heavy weight and wake up huge the next day? If if you do, please tell me how that worked. I want to know because I don't want to be doing all the shit I'm doing right now. If I can just like accidentally deadlift 500 and walk out the gym looking like Phil Heath. It's a really funny two-way street where it's because I feel like both exercise science, a lot of it, uh, and also like how to learn languages both exist on like an incredible amount of like really suspect conventional wisdom Mm -hmm. that, you know, on one hand, like I think the reason for this condition in both cases is like whatever good academic studies exist on the topic do not filter well into the public consciousness. Mm -hmm. They certainly don't filter well into like the academic instructional setting where somebody might go to learn how to teach language or learn how to teach exercise science and you know for whatever reason like language teachers today are still doing like really ineffective stuff that they've been doing for a really long time and i'm sure it's probably pretty similar with certain exercise science degrees so there's some form of um like it almost doesn't really matter what undergirds your system of trying to do something people really just seem to want some notion that they have something undergirding their system. Like, Oh yeah. Like this all makes total sense. Like, you know, if you do a bench press and you didn't just row right before you've left like gains on the table and it's like, right. Okay. Maybe like, why do you think that though? Like, what are you talking about? Like, can you at least tell me that? And it's usually like, no, but it's sort of like, now that I know that I can begin like efficiency maximization Mm-hmm. because I know all this stuff to do to make the process work the best that it could possibly work. And so I was like, I guess I just started to launch into like getting obsessed with like, what are these people doing? Just because when I read the AJAT website, I was like, this is really nice because it cuts through so much of the nonsense that you have to deal with trying to learn something in a world where knowledge is so fragmented because mm-hmm. he's like, look, knowledge is fragmented, but like, you're going to give yourself the tools to essentially figure out what works anecdotally for yourself. And, you know, look at me, I did something that people say is basically impossible to do in two years in about two years. And I often find that the roadblocks people experience in doing things like these are like their own preconceived notions about what they're capable of and what they're willing to do. And also the fact that they often try to impose these regimes of self-improvement on themselves in an extremely masochistic way which isn't really ever sustainable. And so it was like, yeah, that makes sense. Like I have been beating myself up my whole life mm-hmm. trying to do things better. Like I should figure out, you know, it's almost Taoist in a way. Like, let me just figure out the way where the water flows downward and then just like let that flow to where I want it to go. 
like let it be as effortless and as integrated into my life in a way that I enjoy as possible. But how did all these people like find that and turn it into its exact opposite again? <laughs> so, you know what I mean? Like, why did they systematize it into this like, you know, brutal regime they have to live under? Right. Like it, it speaks to a sort of ideological precondition, right? Mm-hmm. That creeps in and supplants what would be an alternative, which I think also suggests at least that the masochistic like regime of the self is the more hegemonic. Yeah. It's it's probably extremely difficult to really not fall back into it in different ways. And I mean, I can definitely say that I've experienced that in my own life plenty. Um, Mm -hmm. But so anyways, I was thinking about this and it reminded me of reading an article about philosopher is Alexander Kuzhev and mm-hmm. his it's a really brief article it's about his idea of the end of history what that means and how it's possible that Japanese society preserves the possibility for being human after the end of history and I honestly don't know that it's worth it to really try and get into or describe a lot of that because I feel like in a pretty Deleuzian sense, I just took it and totally bastardized it completely for my own purposes. Um, yeah, it's not even a flight for you. Yeah, like not even really that interested in what Kajev was trying to do because I'm generally particularly suspect of people who feel like Japan has something to say to them about something when they didn't spend very long in Japan and don't speak Japanese. Right. Usually it's like something else is going on there, which is fine. Like go for that. But So what I got out of that was there's a concept um, where he would saying, you know, like in America, you know, mankind has truly disappeared in some sense. True action has disappeared and they've experienced a full reanimalization where uh, I think in his manner of putting it, being human is all about action negating nature Mm -hmm. and thus creating the possibility for history. That's not, I, I guess in America, whether or not he was joking when he said this, it would be a funny joke, I guess. That's not like, that's totally reached its end point. Like there's no more man's action negating anything. He has mm-hmm. completely gone back to the state of animalization where he no longer changes his essence. Um, you know, I just sort of threw that away or used it as inspiration, but I was thinking like, well, that sounds like to me is sort of like, we're existing in a state of like pure market rationality on a sort of social basis where we really can only think of stuff in terms of like, what's the use value or what is like, you know, like how am I going to maximize utility in this situation? And that's, you know, especially whenever we have a political debate, it's usually carried on in those terms. Um, You know, when we, think about how we're going to decide how to exercise if we're that specific kind of person. Those are the terms we're going to think about it in. Yeah. So I think it's sort of like, you know, this is like a standard critique, right? Like we're not breaking out the new, the new shit, the new, new shit right here. And we point out that the idea of like utility maximalization, like I don't think it's wrong in and of itself, right? Like in other words, if you're doing specific certain things, 
uh, it might be good to try to get the most out of it. Like, let's say, in energy policy or something like that. However, um, that might not be a good structure for living one's life, uh, let's say. Or even, like, trying to have a, um, you know, this is, of course, the more, like, obsessed with the classics version of myself, like the just polity that has some level of nuanced deliberation and thought. And in fact, the utility maximization often trends away from the agonism or the struggle of democracy and towards technocratic elite management. It becomes very skeptical of the need for anything to be messily deliberated or that there's an ethic uh, that's important there in and of itself because those things don't look like utils. They look like problems that need to be streamlined, right? And we can take a look at what's going on with AJAT and say, there's this thing that you enjoy, keep doing it, you'll learn you know, Japanese by becoming obsessed with J-pop because you're already a pop music fan and like that works for you, right? And you'll be able to sustain that for a lot longer than the allegedly faster, more efficient way of totally brutalizing yourself to do this. And I mean, I think we see this everywhere. There is a type of self-denial, the wounding of the self uh, as the marker for work and progress and especially those in service of efficiency maximization. Yeah, it really, I think what hit home for me was the thing about like listening to music is okay, but it's not best. Mm-hmm. Cause I was like, have you ever like listened? Does music even matter to you? Like, how could you <laughs> say that? You know, like, have you ever just sat down, like listened to music, looked out at the like horizon, you know? And there's just some like distant birds and like dark storm clouds. And you're just like feeling a whole lot of stuff that you cannot verbalize. And you're really having, you know, like call it whatever you want, an aesthetic experience, a a mystical, I don't, you know, whatever it's, you can talk about it in different ways, but it's definitely something that at least feels like it's escaping that logic that's trying to impose itself on your life. When you say something like music is not most efficient, like, it's sort of like excising huge parts of, you know, at least what feel like basic experiences that sort of sustain us as people and like allow us to sort of find some kind of sense of like a meaning or a feeling of being alive or however you want to even get into that. There are just like large swaths of life, which are just totally destroyed when that comes in mm. and says like, that's not most efficient for this goal. So it's now, it has to be cut away. Yeah, the cult of pleasure and the cult of discipline are two sides of the same coin, right? Because, so I was watching this this morning. Um, I was, uh, some guy, uh, you know, I don't know who the fuck this guy is, but posted a brief anti-Semitic video that pointed out that all of the directors who've cast non-white people in European period pieces over the past like five, 10 years are Jewish. Uh-huh. <laughs> like just insane shit you know yeah. and uh of course that is like catnip to Compbot and logo daedalus um you know uh because they rightly find that stuff like totally ridiculous but one of the things the guy was complaining about was like how a woman of color or whatever was cast as a character in the witcher Mm-hmm. And Kampot was like, ah, yeah, Western culture. <laughs> like, <laughs> the Witcher must be defended. 
And some guy was just like, you know, you know, it, it, it's just like a whole thing. I'm not going to walk through it. But like one of the things Logo pointed out is he says, you know, like gaming is just pornography. Like, so all of you guys are conservatives that are against porn. All the shit is just like pornography. And this one guy was like, it's not pornography. It's entertainment where he says, you know, like beer or a girlfriend or what. And I was just like, dude, a girlfriend. That's like so blackpilled. I can't even imagine that perspective but it makes sense if we think about it like this right on the one hand we have what the overarching values are which is maximizing the utility of your life making yourself incredibly efficient you know um, doing all of these things and then what are going to be the second order things well if you have overarching ideas like let's say transcendent ideals of love or civic service or these things those don't really stem from a rational self-interest thing. And so those can't be cast aside. Uh, those can't even be relegated to second order because they axiomatically interfere with the util problem, right? And the self-interest problem. So what, but they're not going to go away. They're part of life. So where are they going to end up? They're going to end up in the pleasure spectrum, right? Which is basically like entertainment, which is you staying in your cube and eating your bugs and trying to see social progress in whatever the boardroom at Marvel Studios has cooked up for its latest piece of immortal intellectual property <laughs> that they churn out from the CGI'd Valhalla of Universal Studios. Yeah. The, the girlfriend comment, I feel like, is especially revealing. Um, yeah, like a beer or a girlfriend. I was just like, ah, oh, yeah, like uh, the truth of Eros, like a beer. like a yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, okay, obviously, whatever girlfriends you may have had, uh, you know, weren't human beings, I guess. But, right. which is, you know, honestly, like, not even to knock anybody who says that, because it's probably such a general condition for a certain segment of the population that... Yeah. It's all the stuff that if you want to go read The Last Psychiatrist, you'll find like 9,000 posts about like people who can only see other people in their lives as sort of like, I don't, you know, like they're accessories to me and like what they say about me is how they matter and mean to me. And it's sort of, you know, it just sidesteps the ability to even think like, oh, this person existed before they knew me. They had their own life. They had their own trajectories and hopes and stuff and now they're with me and we're like working something out together because the you know because this is sort of like a special and interesting thing to be like tied to somebody else in this way yeah it's just sort of like you know she's hot and like makes me look pretty tight to my friends like when we're out and stuff but like sometimes she's kind of a bitch so i don't know you know like yeah yeah it's just like you're you probably don't want to be that vapid you probably don't see yourself as that vapid but you kind of are when it happens to you Mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, probably a lot of the stuff we're going to discuss on the show, especially when we get into like our own version of like amateur psychology based on random stuff we read. <laughs> I think that it'll all tie together pretty well because, you know, we're getting into, I think, certain features of like basic mass psychology today and how they seem to um, make themselves known in people's behavior. And that really can't be pulled apart from, say, like the theory of societal narcissism and things like that, which are mm -hmm. probably all, you know, their models, their concepts for thinking about things. They're probably not literally 100% true, but they're interesting ways of trying to get a handle on the fact that 
things seemed so like weird and kind mm -hmm. of horrible at times when dealing with other people. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think this is so one of the things we want to talk about was like a piece that I never wrote or I mean, I started to, but couldn't get finished because it was there are a lot of reasons for that. Uh, I mean, when I was really working full time and trying to freelance and trying to like teach the classics online and like everything else in life, you know, um, things get away from you. But uh, I have worked for plenty of uh, small businesses in my time and particularly small businesses that have a certain kind of person at the helm somebody who has the problem of what I call entrepreneur brain, you know, you've seen this on your Instagram feed or whatever. It's the person that's always show, sharing like Steve Jobs memes about like what it means to be an entrepreneur or whatever. Just Google entrepreneur memes and you'll see exactly what I mean. Like, and the type of psychology that's there. And I think it speaks to, a problem of social bonds. There's also some class stuff going on, but I'm going to approach it from this angle, right? And it's a problem of social bonds, which I think can be pulled from what we've discussed so far. In other words, uh, if you're just totally instrumentalizing yourself for success, like where does all the other stuff that it means to be human go? And so like one of the things that I thought about is like, the first thing is kind of a narcissistic collapse. And I mean this in People tend to think that like narcissism just means being self-centered. That might be true, but that's not really what the, what it is. It is um, the inability to distinguish subject and object, right? Everything relates back to the self. There's nothing totally outside of you. And kind of attending that the self is so weak, small and insignificant because of this like problem of object relation. Like you don't actually have a real self that can withstand being in the world as a part of that condition. Yes. Yeah. That's why narcissistic people always need narcissistic supply. You know, usually the self-aggrandizement and the like brutalization of others by like whatever means are at hand. Right. And I think there's a specific version of that that happens in like entrepreneur uh, brand. And I think it's one of the two like foundations of it that I quote unquote diagnose, which is the self brand collapse. And so if we think about it this way, like I watched the Paris Hilton documentary, which is actually like really good. And I encourage people to watch it. And you watch her struggle with this. It's very clear that she was sent away to some like totally brutal, like one of those boot camps for kids where they like put her in solitary confinement for hours and shit like that. To get out of that scenario, she created the brand of herself, which was like this party girl, this whatever, you know, and it created a collapse between who she really was and the image she was creating and what that did. Now, I'm not knocking her. This is a strategy to deal with having the cultivation of yourself brutalized at an early age. So you cannot fully develop that self in a healthy way, right? This isn't to be like, she's dumb or vapid or, you know, that, I don't think that's fair. And I'm not interested in doing that sort of like low key, frankly, sexist <laughs> um, approach to understanding the situation. But, you know, she's really the first influencer. And if we look back at my face, my space, my space also from around the same time period is basically what we all live in now, which turns everything into a type of entertainment 
I mean, it was the biggest social media platform for a while and every social media platform after it takes something from MySpace and even companies like Spotify, you know, uh, a lot of this is from Finn McKenty's MySpace video. I'll link that in the bibliography. You can check it out. So where am I going with all this? The self-brand collapse. You know, you've been working for a small business when you see it, when the person constantly refers to themselves as their company or does the royal we when referring to their own business. And that can't live on its own, right? Most firms need employees, yeah. And so what you're going to get is you're going to get a quote-unquote chosen family out of that. And the chosen family uh, shtick is also, if you've ever been to, like, I can't tell you how many times I've been with a small business owner and working for them, and they're like, this is a family. Like, you work for a family. Like, I know that I make all of the money off of this and pay you minimum wage, but, like, we're a family and we look after each other. Like, we really take care of each other. Because here at Fluked Micronics, like, we really believe in unity. And our brand is that unity succeeds over division. And, like, that's why, you know, this is a family. This is our tribe. Our tribe is people who believe in unity. Right. Can you come in for free tonight? Yeah, can you come in for free tonight? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> I think that's, that's crucial to it, you know. And this seems to be a hegemonic thing, right? To bring it back to the MySpace thing. The reason it's hegemonic is that, like, if you're on social media, as I am, you intuitively experience the world this way, whether you admit it to yourself or not. That is what social media is ultimately for. These are free platforms so that big companies can sell your shit to whoever the fuck and so that you can market yourself to others and that isn't sustainable over time for psychology you know like there is the whole interesting moment when i mean however staged these things are where it's mentioned briefly a couple times in the paris hilton documentary um are you worried that like talking about this trauma or whatever is going to hurt your brand? You know? And I think that that's like the question, <laughs> Yeah, you know, like that there is something, but then you can see easily how this like can fit into it. This is the real Paris. This is the real that, you know? And so these things can always be instrumentalized in service of like the symbol of the self. Yeah, and one of the interesting things that I started thinking about regarding entrepreneur brain is the guy who started Ajax, Katsumoto, has an idea that, you know, it's uh, he called it Anglo-Saxon masochism. Um, mm. And I think Anglo-Saxon's probably a fine way of putting it, but I think it sort of really derives from the Prussian school system, which got exported like across the globe eventually. Like basically school as we know it is Prussian in origin and by design was made to begin to apply certain methods of molding people for state use there and people who ran states elsewhere were so impressed that they were like, well, we're going to do that too. And eventually you get the intrusion of like scientific methods for management and education and systematizing things for you know kind of like applying the logic of the machine to the social 
was kind of all the rage at a certain point in the in that in the advent of modernity or whatever. So you have like um, the idea, like, well, people basically, if we put them all in the same system, give them the same stuff, we'll be able to churn out reliably like people who have the same capabilities, which sort of relies on an idea that people are inherently like tabula rasa or something. You just take them and you do that with them. And maybe, you know, like in a factory, a few things get broken during the process and you throw them away and yeah, the same idea with the human beings. And then, you know, most of them make it out fine and they can be functionaries in your society somehow. Yeah. Um, so it's sort of like an imposition from the top down. I guess you would say it's very Foucauldian. It's the disciplinary society. Katsumoto says, if you want to think about like, what are, what is Anglo-Saxon masochism? It's like school in the army essentially. And in those settings, extremely effective um, at doing what they're going to say they want to do. However, our goals might not be their goals. And so like their system may not exactly work for us. And one thing he brings up is that people, only the most exceptional people seem to be able to self-impose that on themselves. Usually you need other people standing behind you ready to like hit you when you mess up for that to work. Like you really can't do it to yourself for that long. You just burn out, you give up. I'm sure many people can identify with trying to impose something on themselves they thought would be good for themselves. And like a week later, they like, you know, it reached such a horrible impasse internally that they had to give it up completely and maybe never even try it again mm-hmm. because it just did not work. But in the, the manner of Ivan Illich, I think that that is kind of the basic, what did he call it? The secret curriculum, the unwritten curriculum of school is essentially we're learning how to learn. We learn that that's how to learn. Um, we learn dependence upon institutions in all manners of life that becomes sort of like a general feature of our, of our psychology is kind of a need for, for large institutional bodies to solve certain problems for us because we learn that that's how it goes from such an early age. There's a lot of interesting crossover with the last psychiatrist there where he has a few articles. One was about a kid who sees, you know, like some bully trying to beat someone else up. So he runs in and like knocks Mm -hmm. the bully over and the entire system intervenes to show him how that was the wrong thing to do, how that was bad and how he should have gone to a teacher and relegated that situation to a higher authority, which would have probably ignored it or done nothing. Like that's what you learn in school is that like standing up and doing the right thing is wrong. Like things like that are sort of the secret lessons of those places And I think that in some ways we go through these systems which have survived, you know, what you might call the disciplinary society. We no longer exactly live in those times, although these institutions haven't completely, um, they haven't withered away or disappeared, but they now exist in a kind of different configuration with a different social setup, which, you know, if you wanted like an easy introduction, people always point to the postscript to societies of control by Deleuze, which is a really short and beautiful. Yeah. It's a really yeah, good, good way of kind of getting into this way of thinking. Uh, Pyong Chul Han writes about this, yeah, like every book. Yeah. Psychopolitics is a great one. Um, all kind of are trying to get at like this basic change that's happened and what's going on. And it seems sort of like there is, much like the society exists in between two states. Often it seems like 
we exist both with a sort of entrepreneur brain, which involves what Han calls a kind of like an internal locus of control, um, an internal auto domination is being exercised by yourself against yourself. Whereas in disciplinary society, we possessed an external locus of control where we merely had to respond to the external stimuli and it didn't require us to think so much for ourselves. But it seems like one of the things that happens when you move into psychopolitical uh, situation, entrepreneur brain is a huge increase in like psychic burden, um, which I think you were really getting at when you talked about Paris Hilton. There is a certain way in which the onus is now on you to do these things to yourself, to modulate and moderate yourself constantly, practice self-surveillance. The way that Han puts it, and it's kind of um, compelling to me, at least as a general thought, is that like the people who don't do this are sort of like the failures. They burn out, they fall away. Who knows what happens to them? But they or they're already an underclass, which is something he doesn't consider. Like they're never going to like yeah. emerge from that, right? Like yeah, they're not even in the game in in a way. Yeah. So you have people in the game who are afraid of falling out of the game, and people who couldn't even play. And I think that for the people who are who at least think that they're in the game and are trying to play, the psychic burden becomes immense, and it leads to you know as he tries to talk about in burnout society, like the phenomenon of burnout, which is pretty endemic. Um, and I think that existing within that, there is a certain like backwards-looking appeal to the disciplinary systems because they exerted a sort of control upon you, but they also provided you with an external logic and an external enforcement, which you like, it leaves you energy for other things because you're just responding to external stimuli. It's sort of like, you know, being a Skinner box versus being inside of a Skinner box. Like, (laughs) you know, being inside of one sucks, but when you also have to perform the function of the box on yourself, it's almost like 10 times worse in some ways because of the exhaustion of having to run that kind of program constantly. Well, it's like, so you see, I think that that is the, that's the appeal of the system. Even the system built on a completely like nonsensical, non-empirical basis is that like, I have some kind of semi-coherent thing and I can just give like judgment over to this system and I can just exist within its disciplinary, disciplinary regime in a way that, you know, it asks so much more of me to be unsure mm-hmm. all the time while still having to perform these functions. Yeah, exactly. Well, and it's also part of like what Zizek talks about as the uh, traditional patriarchal father versus the postmodern father, where the traditional mm-hmm. patriarchal father will be like, we're going to your grandma's whether you like it or not, because that's what <laughs> you do. And you can have the dignity of being like, I fucking hate this and I hate you, right? Mm-hmm. But the postmodern dad will say, you know how your grandmother loves to see you. Now you don't have to go, but I think it would make her very sad if you didn't come with us this weekend. And so now not only do you have to go, but you have to manage your inner life in a way that conforms to the task because that's the way the imperative is structured. 
Yeah. You know, and that takes a huge psychic debt, right? And there are all sorts of, so in the draft for the piece, you know, I'll share some of this. I'll write like a little bit of a thing for the bibliography, um, especially because I actually sourced it. Um, I had like grand aspirations for this idea, uh, but it is good to get it out on a podcast and not have to ruthlessly draft myself. Um, (laughs) And so I came up with like, we have the self-brand collapse, the chosen family um, of having employees as parts of it. This also creates like a work-life distinction collapse and also like the inability to discern like what's happening, what you see as a viewer as marketing versus some sort of like other information. I mean, those seem to be like big societal problems. It is, I think, you know, this might be a sort of like boomer complaint, but it is a real problem when there are like fake news items that are sponsored that like the New York Times or whatever carries along with their news material. And then you go to the bottom of the piece in some tiny corner and it's like paid for by British Petroleum. You know, yeah. <laughs> right? Like that's a big problem. And I think that's like part of, you know, this endemic to this whole thing. So there are archetypes, right? Um, I'm going to borrow some of this from Bradley Trammell. I wish I could link to his video, uh, but I can't because uh, he keeps it all behind his Patreon um paywall but i will just give him the nod a link to his patreon um and you should check him out because he's the king and he never misses but he did a great thing on the uh gallery owner jessica silverman who's had all of these fawning things written about her and it's all about how she works harder than anyone right she thinks coffee is a food group she follows through on her follow-through you know, like she really makes it happen. Um, <laughs> and this is what I call the ethic of hustle harderism. I'm sure other people have developed similar things or whatever, but that's what I call it. Uh, maybe Tramel calls it that. I can't remember anymore, uh, but that's what we'll call it for this episode. And it is sort of the fetishization of work in and of itself. The interesting thing is, is that Jessica Silverman actually doesn't really have to work. Her parents are incredibly wealthy, famous gallery owners, right? Like this whole life was built for her, but that's not acceptable in the discourse of entrepreneur brain. She has to have earned it somehow. This is what separates like Anglo elite from like Latin elite, where like in the Anglo world, you have to have worked for it to some degree, mm-hmm. uh, which is basically a big lie. And there's something a little bit more on it. I remember I wrote, I, I think it was like Nicholas Medina Mora. Um, you can follow him on Twitter. He was pointed out he's uh, Mexican and he was saying like, our elites like don't even give a shit about making that sort of aesthetic appeal. They're just like, we're above you. Like, <laughs> that's just the way it works. You know? like, it's not, Thank yeah, you for your honesty. Yeah, you're right. It's not <laughs> rational. You know, who cares? We're above you. <laughs> like, it's in our interest, you know. Um, and so that's a whole ethic that needs to be cultivated. I'll link to a piece that's just like, you know, her secret, Silverman's secret to 10 years of successful gallery ownership. And it starts, you know, oh, I started doing like small things like with my art school friends, but then it got a write up in a major art publication. And it's like, yeah, I wonder how that happened. Mm-hmm. I wonder why like art forum gave a shit about your tiny show in like the middle of Northern California 
that like no one came to. I wonder how you got access to that press. Clearly, you get that by working really hard, right? I mean, anybody who has any experience with this stuff knows that that just comes from connections. Like the whole media thing runs on nepotism. It's not a meritocracy. You know, everything I've gotten in my small sphere has come from like nepotism, basically. You know, you know somebody who's an editor, they think you're smart enough to publish or your friends, you know, and you pay. And I feel like editor. that's probably even more true of art media than other kinds of media oh, in many 100%. ways. Yes, absolutely. Smaller, smaller pond, fewer fish. It's really all a rigged game is how it looks from the outside. Plus, how many people can write in international art English? Which is yeah. like, you know, you need like three master's degrees and a PhD to be able to be like, you know, the semiotic corpuscle of so-and-so's uh, environmental gloop is a commentary on the damaged state and being of the subject in the late capitalist reproductive uh, realm of psychic reification, right? Mm. Like, you know, you could just put that in any issue of art forum or even like eFlux or whatever. And I like some shit from eFlux. Um, so that's one part of it. The other thing is like, I was thinking about um, Elizabeth Holmes of uh, Theranos. Yeah, Theranos. Yeah, so Elizabeth Holmes does like uh, Theranos and uh, it's if you watch that documentary, it's clear that she's a huckster. I call this Ahab syndrome, right? Where it's like, she's chasing the thing that's like totally impossible and like will destroy her and everyone else around her. Mm. You know, uh, <laughs> which the first itself, time I've heard that one. The, which weds itself well to sort of the allegory for America that's going on in like the Pequod and the creation of the firm in America in Moby Dick. But, um, you know, one of the most telling moments in that documentary to me was when one of the engineers was like, if we could have just made it a little bit bigger, it would have worked. And, but she was adamant that it had to be the size of like a Hewlett Packard printer. Mm. You know, and like that. One of the things I, oh, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, and that's physically impossible. And that's ultimately what leads to the downfall of whatever scam she was running. One of the things that keeps appearing in like bios of her and stuff or back when she wasn't, you know, um, just destroyed by scandal, we'll say back when Persona it seemed like, yeah. yeah, back when it seemed like this might work out, you could find pieces about her and they would be like, she wears a black turtleneck like Steve Jobs. Oh, and yeah. <laughs> like the same yeah. black turtleneck yeah. every day. Yeah. She's and always the last to leave the office, right? Like yeah, that's yeah. the just like really weird stuff where it's like you are like, okay, like do you, did she actually say like I'm gonna be like Steve Jobs and start dressing like him? Because that's amazing. And she was like, Yeah, and then you know, it's a very Steve Jobs thing to do to be like, No, it's gonna be this size. Like yeah. because you don't get it, man. Like that's the future. Like I don't like and, buttons. That's why none of our phones are going to have buttons anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it, you know, first is tragedy, then is farce. I don't know. It's sort of like, because Steve Jobs, for whatever you might want to say about him, especially early on, I feel like he actually knew a lot more. He mm -hmm. had a much better idea of the way the wind was blowing with regards to how computers were going to be used, um, yes. what the internet was really going to be for. And part of that could be because he was instrumental in the creation of this world that he saw coming. But there was also some, you know, there was something to him where you could at least say that he had some like Bannon-esque instincts there where he was like, okay, 
these are what machines can be for people and I'll make them that way and it'll be successful. And, you know, in some manner or another that happened, you know, his vision of everybody just kind of like being connected by the internet with these really smooth looking boxes is basically what we're doing right now. So even if he kind of proceeded to become an icon with easily adaptable sort of like external symbols that there was an original sort of, there was a thing that actually worked that actually had some real relationship sure. he had a visionary to reality. Quality. He had a visionary quality to him. I mean, I think just for, um, uh, real heads out there. It's uh, interesting to think about um, Norman Belgetti's, um, who I'll do a whole thing about later when I think we talk to Matty Sirwinski about nuclear power and like dreams of modernity in America. But he's the guy that designed all of that really like streamlined looking stuff in the 50s that we understand, like the teardropped shaped like vans and stuff like that. And I think one way to think about it is that we have like the golden age of the 30 glorious years, right. Of the post-war era where the U S is like, it's as hegemonic as it's really going to be ever um, in both soft and hard power. And there's a dream of the future and that's what it looks like. It looks smooth. It's non-frictive. And then we get sort of the malaise of the seventies and eighties and into the nineties. And that's where everything takes on like a blocky texture you know, uh, and juts out and looks kind of like ugly and brutalist in that way, depending on your tastes. Uh, And then after 9-11, which is also like the iPod comes out right around 9-11. And suddenly we're back to the teardrop smooth aesthetic. It's like, it's like the the uh, shot of adrenaline in the heart of the American self image. <laughs> <You know? laughs> and so it's interesting that there's like a callback to this sort of like the smoothness of modernity that Apple takes up that I think in the tradition of Norman Belgetti's, um, who also designs like, I mean, he came up with the phrase superhighways mm-hmm. and, you know, developed that stuff for GM at the 1939 world's fair. And we're going to, I'm going to deep dive on Belgetti's later because I think He's sort of a forgotten creator of the American world and the American identity. Um, But yeah, Steve Jobs was, I think, I mean, also his shit worked, right? Like that's, you know, the proof is in the point. Yeah, that's kind of the point, yeah, is that 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 stuff like had a relationship to reality. And then you got sort of somebody who wanted to, to like mantle his image and become him, but lacked like all the necessary qualities and possessed only the sort of incidental ones. And you know, it feels like that is part and parcel of the the enacting of entrepreneur brain in a way. Like, I feel like so much of what you see going on on LinkedIn or whatever is like signaling in a way, sort of signaling, but the signaling is almost as important to you as it is to them when you're doing it. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, really, there's... There's also like the third archetype I wanted to get into, which is the uh, what I call the Osho archetype. Osho being that cult leader. Um, yeah. They did that whole documentary about. And I think that um, Adam uh, Neumann from WeWork, which ended up just being like a huge real estate Ponzi scheme. Um, you know, he was always barefoot. He had this cult of personality around him. I mean, I think we can recognize this as an archetype for a postmodern business leader. You know, that there's a pseudo-spiritual quality to whatever's happening, you know. And I think, like, here's how I would divide them up, right? So I have, like, 
um, the hustle harderism, uh, Ahab syndrome, Osho syndrome, uh, as these sort of things. I think maybe one thing we could say is that that's like the traditional Jeffersonian yeoman entrepreneur, uh, would be the hustle harder thing. Uh, the, um, captain of industry, uh, that's sort of the Ahab syndrome, right? Um, and then we have sort of like the P.T. Barnum uh, Osho type, right? Like these are, you know, I think the three, uh, the ringmaster, let's call it. Those are like the three mm-hmm. archetypes of entrepreneur brain. Yeah. And I think like if we're going to bring it back to what we generally talk about in the show, it's like why nothing fears possible. It's like all of these, you know, businesses are kind of bullshit. The art world is a money laundering scheme for wealth criminals. It doesn't really have anything to do with aesthetics or beauty or anything like that. So anybody who's like running a successful gallery is probably just peddling bullshit. Like none of it fucking matters, right? It's the most nihilistic shit in the world. The Elizabeth Holmes stuff uh, doesn't really make anything, right? It participates in the grand Silicon Valley tradition of what I call unovation, right? Um, and we can see that in like Juicero, Uh, In case anybody remembers where you would put a bag of juice in a machine that had like an industrial grade presser that would squeeze it out, which was quickly made uh, obsolete by the use of human hands um, to squeeze the bag. Uh, And so that company tanked. And there's all sorts of stuff like that, right? So none of this really means anything. It's all like hedge fund managership and scams and stuff like that because most of it's trying to either innovate or unovate shit that's already there. Um, uh, or it's a completely craven idea that is so beholden to its creator that no one can question or think it through or do anything like that. You know, I think this is sort of where we're at. These are all things that are profiting without producing. Yeah. And the choice you're presented as a person, um, let's say you don't exist in an underclass that, you know, in America. So maybe you have the choice to say like, I can participate in that and hope to have some semblance of like wealth. Um, you know, I can at least live okay. Or, you know, like what, what is your option for stepping outside of that? It's not always clear. And I won't say that there are none certainly, but it feels like if you're a person let's say who like cares what the result of what they do is, or like, you know, maybe it just matters to them that their time on this earth, like contributes to something somehow. It's an extremely dysphoric proposition to just integrate yourself into a system of like endless signaling and the performing of, you know, essentially David Graeber's bullshit jobs. Uh, Rest in peace, by the way. Yeah. RIP our good friend, David, um, there's a certain, I don't know, maybe I can bring it to something like autobiographical, but basically most of the jobs that I've worked have felt like I was an appendage to an essentially meaningless system. Um, you know, let's see, I worked, I sold like TVs and stuff once and you know, that was fine, but we were on commission. And so there is a constant sense that you need to be selling the stuff that has the most um, commission on the item, obviously, but that would always be, you know, like the best interest of my customer was never my best interest is how that system always played out 
like if they were rich and wanted a really nice TV, then that would work out for me. But most of the time, like if I was trying to up my commission, I would be actively working against like maybe what they wanted or what would work for them or like what would be best for like the amount of money they have. I would essentially have to be manipulating them for my gain and against like what was good for them. And that basic reality just felt so shitty every single day that I dreaded going into work so much. I would feel like a horrible feeling in my chest walking into work until eventually one day I remember walking out the front door and just thinking to myself, like, I'm not coming back. Like they don't know this, but I'm not going to come back to work anymore because I just can't do this anymore. And then I would go on to have like several more jobs, each with about the same nine month lifespan, same exact problem. Like, I don't know what I'm doing here. This is miserable. Like, I don't know who I'm serving, what the purpose of this business really is. Like, what good does it do people for me to be here? And often once you would learn about your business, like it, how it exists in the realm of, let's say like stocks and trading, like this business doesn't even make money. This is just like a weird part of some hedge funds portfolio that only exists because they continue to allow it to do so for some larger chess game of international finance. And you're just like, you know what I mean? Living in that kind of, it's, it somehow destroys your sense of like possibility, like what's possible socially. And it's like, well, clearly I'm not going to find it by trying to like be a normal person and get a job because this is like what's on offer now. Mm -hmm. Most of the time. You didn't find working at uh, Ross like super fulfilling. Um, (laughs) uh, Just like I didn't find working at hot topic, super fulfilling. What was really funny is like hot topic was on its way out basically by the time I showed up there and had lost a bunch of money, but it used to treat its management super well because it was interested in like creating like the tribe of hot topic. Right. So it fly, fly out the managers to give them a show with like Marilyn Manson or my chemical romance. And one of my managers was still from that era and she really missed it. And instead, like the only time we saw a corporate was when the guy came by to tell us we need to turn the music up to the point we were getting noise complaints from our neighbors. And like, I wouldn't be able to like really hear or pay attention to anything for the next like two hours after I worked. And like, look, there are definitely like harder jobs out there and I've worked some of those, but none of these jobs even pay enough so that you can have a fruitful life outside of that job. Yeah. Like you could put up with doing some bullshit for several hours during the day. If it meant that you had leisure to live a life of a normal person. But that's not even what it is. And I think that's what's so toxic about how the trickle-down effect of entrepreneur brain, where it's encouraged that individual employees start to see them as entrepreneurs within the firm itself, you know, and that you need to become, mold yourself to whatever the firm is, which is like ridiculous when you're working at like a fucking sandal hut in the mall. You know, like, are you a really like sandal hut type of person? And it's like, what the fuck does that even mean? I use a cash register. Like, am I what type of per? Like, you know, this place smells like weird rubber and I have to listen to 311 for nine hours a day. You know, like. What that was that the huge mean? disconnect, uh, especially when I got into a corporate structure where I was like bottom totem pole call center guy was when they try to include you into the, like the team spirit building stuff and they bring you, like we would go to the company meeting every month to listen to them talk about like, 
you know, quarterly earnings and like, here's what we're planning to do for the next quarter. And like, here's where we fell short and all this stuff that's sort of like the grand vision of our executives and like how we're all a part of that mission. It almost feels like they, they don't know what that's like for you. Like they're so sincere when they're like, yeah, like we're all in this together. And you're like, people basically yell at me so I can make enough money to like get by. And as soon as I can get out of here, I'm out of here. Yeah. Like, yeah, I, you know what I mean? Like, and it's just like, you're saying like, if I made enough money that I could like do a lot of stuff outside of work, it would probably be so much easier to just say like, okay, like fine, mm-hmm. I'll go along with it. I'll integrate myself into the stupid stuff. I'll like, you know, participate in, whatever like team games you want me to do and like whatever because when I go home I have like a good paycheck waiting for me and I can support myself and a family if I would like to on that instead of like when I leave here I go to my other job sometimes and like that goes and maybe until two or three in the morning and then I go home and collapse and then I have to wake up and you tell me how like great it is to be here and working all together Mm -hmm. but like you go home to your house you know with like your wife and stuff and there's like a huge, I don't know. I don't want to call it like they don't have any empathy because I don't feel like it's a personal thing. I feel like it's such a structural society. Yeah, absolutely. Thing. Yeah, I mean, this is like, you know, we were both reading that horrific piece that came out in like Bloomberg. That's like how yeah. corporations fleeced the working class. And one of the things, it's like even per inflation, the minimum wage has gone down, right? So I think the only solution to this problem is reinvigorating some sort of labor movement. Like it just doesn't make sense without it. You know, people say that all the time, but it's like, what's that going to look like? I mean, this is part of the deadlock we're even trying to approach here. It's why it doesn't even that feel possible. And it doesn't feel possible for all sorts of reasons. I mean, we've talked about, you know, vertically integrated firms don't exist. You know, um, productive sectors of the economy where workers can wield more power because if they withhold their labor, it really threatens it. Uh, doesn't really feel that true. Like when you're um, thinking about organizing like Ross workers or something like that. Right. Yeah. I mean, so it might decentralized. Be, yeah. It's so decentralized. Um, and you I think you can, you can strike in like a handful of places mm-hmm. and they can still fire everybody and just move stuff around. Like it's no longer, exactly like you're saying like the production isn't concentrated and so striking is kind of rendered like it is a gargantuan feat of collaboration and Mm -hmm. management and it was already that way yeah it was already that way you know um because i don't want to be like oh it was so easy in the 30s when the pinkertons would come and just blow your fucking brains out on the concrete of detroit you know (laughs) 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 <laughs> um, not easy but perhaps possible through right, much loss right. of life right and like who can imagine that anymore like you have to believe that there's this alternative that is worth putting yourself on the line for and that alternative yeah. doesn't exist you know there's a real collapse of hope and faith um and aspiration and people might say, you know, like that's too much of a cultural thing or like whatever, that's not how it is. But I do think that despair has become hegemonic in its own way. Yeah. You know, 
there was an article that came out about how the majority of like PPP loans went to stock buybacks. Hell yeah. <laughs> and um, stuff like it was all basically companies bought their own stock. Yeah, Boeing's looking for more money, by the way. Our, our best friend Boeing is looking for more bailout money this next time around after buying back their stock and firing a bunch of fucking people. And the beautiful thing is the PPP loans are like payroll protection. Like mm-hmm. that's so that you don't have to stop paying people. And I wouldn't be surprised if like literally not a single dollar of that went to like anybody on a payroll, like just wouldn't even shock me. But I remember reading it and something hit me about how there is some part of me that still like hopes for or wants basic decency and compassion in a time of crisis where like somebody somewhere would be like, yeah, like things are bad. We're going to take care of people. And to just look into like this void where like that doesn't exist. No one gives a shit about anybody like fuck them, let them die. Mm-hmm. It kind of is like, yeah, like, what do I do about that? Like, just even psychologically myself, like, how <laughs> yeah, do like I not even, even as a social movement, like, yeah, how do I like, respond? Yeah. Like, what am I even supposed to say? Like, you know, uh, do I, to bring it back to Kajev in Japan, like, I'll like, I'll just get in a boat and like go to Japan and just sit down somewhere and look at the autumn leaves fall and just like <laughs> breathe and just yeah. be like, you know, goodbye floating world. <laughs> Mm-hmm. like yeah. i don't know what to do yeah like what do you you know and there's all sorts of electioneering around the civil unrest that's happening right now and around the covid relief it's in neither party's interest to actually help out the american people in this crisis because it's an election year they're both using it as leverage to get out the vote you know like that's what that's what we're dealing with and I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say about that. I don't, I've been trying to figure out how to respond to this all year. You know, I've called it default mode elsewhere where we're defaulting to our basic training, which is all of the hegemonic entrepreneur, the self stuff that we've talked about before. You know, if I just discipline myself in the right ways, if I just do this, that, or the other internally, I might get through this okay. You know, because it's also sapped our social solidarity because we can't be near each other physically, literally. Yeah, it's almost so trite to say like social atomization is a constant reality and it's now only deepened, but that's sort of, that is what it is. You know, we used to Mm -hmm. say like, well, they designed and built suburbs and newer cities to be as, um, you know, there's a lot of space mainly meant to be traversable by cars. And some people theorize that this was to keep people from being able to walk places together and like form protests or mass movements or anything that would happen in an old style city, you know, like Mm -hmm. this was now, you know, you can't do anything without first driving to it, which basically curtails 90% of like social action. Um, we used to talk about things in those terms or like, yeah, I can meet up with people, but often enough I feel so alienated from them that I just couldn't bring myself to like do something like that because we're all kind of just afraid of each other um, and sort of weird and lost. And, you know, but it was at least like possible, I guess that I could go join something and be together with people. But now that's gone too. Mm -hmm. And it's like, well, you know, we can zoom and, 
talk about stuff on zoom, but it, it is really, it leaves you like at a total loss and you're like, well, I can begin to describe the problem and that's sort of where it ends. <laughs> and I guess know, that's, I yeah, yeah, I guess that's where we end, you know? Um, so I think we're going to do some more specific, this is almost like an intro episode to some elements of the self that we're going to look into later. And so I just want to preview some of that stuff for you guys. We have um, some stuff in the pipe on social media coming up um, that we want to take a look at. Obviously we have to do our obligatory uh, social media episode um, and that'll likely be a running thing. And we've talked about the people who inspire us before. One of those is of course the late great Christopher Lash and we're hoping to do some reading series on some of his work. He gets talked about a lot now, seemingly out of nowhere. Um, and I think it is worth uh, spending some time close reading what he's doing so that we can all get a better picture of what he had on offer and both where it's useful and where it's not. Um, so thank you guys. I hope this was helpful and uh, interesting to you. And we now have an email. So if you want to reach out to us, uh, questions, comments, critiques, those last category, keep them real short, um, or don't send them at all. Uh, you can send them to uh, ex.haustpodcast at gmail.com. That is going to be linked either in the bibliography or the show notes. Um, and uh, don't forget to please, please, uh, this is our entrepreneur brain moment, rate, review, and subscribe um, because it helps us show up in the algorithm. We'd like for more people to hear this, especially with some of the stuff we've got coming up later on. Um, and I hope that you want more people to hear it. So thank you for tuning in and we will see you next week.